Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we've heard the grim statistic for some time now that well over half a million people have died of COVID in the U.S. A number you may be less familiar with is the estimate that each death leaves behind about nine survivors. A grief crisis is building in America, with more than five million people now suffering the loss of someone close to them from the pandemic. The numbers, doctors and researchers say, require a public health response. We look at addressing the toll of the grief crisis next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. While this past Mother's Day was a cause for celebration, as some people hugged their moms for the first time post-vaccine, for others, it triggered a profound sadness as they experienced their first Mother's Day without their moms. More than 580,000 people have died of COVID in the U.S., and studies find that for every death, nine grieving people are left behind, among them an estimated 40,000 children who've lost a parent. The grief crisis is coming, writes Alison Gilbert in her New York Times opinion piece, with big social and economic impacts that require government intervention. Alison Gilbert joins us now. Gilbert is a journalist and author of the book Past and Present, Keeping Memories of Loved Ones Alive. Alison Gilbert, thanks for joining us. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Tony Miles, Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Georgia's College of Public Health, also a medical doctor. Dr. Miles, glad to have you here as well. Thank you for inviting me. Alison Gilbert, I'll start with you. Could you give us a better sense of the scope of our national grief? You wrote a little bit about nine people left behind by every death in your New York Times piece. How did researchers arrive at that figure? Well, professors at Penn State University and other institutions have been doing this Herculean amount of work uh, that really produced what they call the COVID-19 bereavement multiplier. It's a mouthful, but like you just said, what they are um, coming up with in terms of numbers is the number of bereaved. So not the number of people who have died from COVID-19, but those of us who are left behind um, from that loss. And that's actually what's really important about that number is that it's likely 
even much, much larger. The professor who I interviewed for the New York Times opinion piece that I wrote says the number could be up to 10 times as many. Mm. If you include, say, the impact of relatives, because it sounds like the nine is more immediate family, like related to spouses or parents or grandparents, even children and, and siblings. Yeah, and you know, that's exactly it. So uh, the individuals who they took into account for that first statistic that I was mentioning to you is just immediate family. When the number goes much larger, and we can all relate to this very well in terms of nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles and step parents and friends, all of those relationships were not included. And as we know, um, if we lose a friend, if we lose an aunt or an uncle, those hurt. Uh, and so those are really important to take into account as well. And that's where the numbers really, really start ballooning. And Alison Gilbert, what are the well-understood short-term effects of grief? Well, short-term effects are what maybe we're all very familiar with in this COVID-19 era that we are in. Of course, there is acute sadness. For many of us, we feel ripped open by loss. It could be very hard to focus on our responsibilities, whether or not it's at home or at work, whether or not your work is back in person already or remote, it's very hard to stay on task for many people. But there are also long-term consequences that we are also grappling with that have many social and emotional implications that are really um they're studied. And as Dr. Miles can talk to as well, there needs to be right now an urgent need for further research. Mm, yes, Dr. Miles, these long-term effects that Allison is talking about. Also, I understand that you've suspected that grief is the culprit, or at least a major factor in chronic illness as well. Can you talk about some of that? Well, um, so your body reacts to the grief. Uh, as it would to any other kind of, of trauma. And so the, the rise in blood pressure, the rise in adrenaline, all contribute to chronic disease or destabilization of formal, formerly stable chronic disease. So grief, um, we're only starting to learn about how grief affects your body and all the ways it can happen. Things like obesity, diabetes, I understand even when you were talking about interventions for people who want to quit smoking and so on, that, that we don't always recognize that grief is a factor? Yes. Uh, one of the things we've seen, I've looked at data for people over the age of, of 50, and people who quit smoking have reported that with the death of a parent or a spouse, they go back to smoking. So it's really not the smoking addiction that's the problem. It's the un, unresolved grief. And, and, you know, and I would say, too, I mean, for for someone who loves, you know, chocolate, let's say, when she's feeling sad, I admit, you know, you can see how easily this can be um, a symptom of a larger problem if you start gaining weight. A lot of people clearly in this country have 
um, an eating issue when it's tied to emotional eating. We've all heard about that. And so if someone walks into a, a center to lose weight, of course we can help them lose weight, right? You restrict calories, you increase exercise, but what's the cause? And what Dr. Miles is talking about and what really floored me with so much of her research and that of others is that grief is the seed for many people, mm. for all sorts of um, issues that we are grappling with as a society, these measures that doctors like her and others are taking into account when we look at the census data. So I think it's really important has the ripple effects, not just for uh, folks in their fifties and over, but of course, younger too, because we know that there are many, many grieving children as a result of COVID-19 as well. And not just COVID-19, but grieving children is a huge um, uh, population in this country that needs to be uh, paid attention to. Yes. Yeah, well, have, 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 my, yeah, Tony Miles, please. Uh, I was gonna, the easiest way to think about this is there are basically two emotional responses to grief. Sadness is the one we all think about, but a number of people respond with anger. Mm. And so anger drives a lot of cardiovascular disease, acting out behaviors, um, and we're not equipped yet to see it the way we need to. And the anger comes from Dr. Miles. Uh, oh, the, well, as one woman told me about her husband who died, she was angry with him because he didn't work hard enough to live. Now mm, that so you know, it sounds yes. it sounds silly, but uh, no, and she knew it. She knew it, but it was she was angry with him because he had just he personally had reached his limit with fighting his diabetes. He knew it. He tried to communicate that to her, but it took her three or four years to let go of the anger that she had. Well, I want to invite our listeners to join this conversation. How has grief impacted you? Has it changed you, your family? Have you lost a loved one or loved ones even to COVID-19? We're talking with Allison Gilbert, journalist and author, Dr. Tony Miles, professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Georgia's College of Public Health. And you can join us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to also talk a little bit more about the broader social and structural impacts of grief. You've been talking about children. I feel like they're a good way, actually a good lens to understand sort of the broader social impacts, uh, in part because as you alluded to, Alison Gilbert, I mean, there was this study that found 37,000 to maybe up to 43,000 in the U.S. alone have lost a parent to COVID-19. These are kids 17 and younger. And, you know, of course, we've <clears throat> read and seen the heartbreaking stories of parents saying goodbye to, to little ones on an iPad. And uh, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit, uh, Alison Gilbert, about the way that the loss of a parent can, can derail kids. I think this is one of those really essential topics. And I'm so glad that you are uh, bringing this up for us to really dig into today. I am also on the board of the National Alliance for Grieving Children. And we know that children who do not get the support that they need 
whether they are super young or teens or even young adults, they get put on a trajectory into adulthood where they do not do as well. Uh, Many of them, of course, can do okay, but many more don't do as well as we would hope. Here are some of the things that we do know. Relationships uh, may not be as trusted because perhaps that child feels that there is a danger zone. If you get too close, then perhaps that person will also, uh, that's a fleeting relationship. There's a worry that that relationship won't stick around. So there's attachment um, potential uh, challenges for these children. That's just one. Uh, Dr. Miles talked about anger, but I can also talk about resentment, um, being envious, being jealous of peers who do have um, their parents and feeling out of place isolation, feeling that when you look around a classroom, there are students who are getting and receiving more differently than what you have. And that can lead to uh, loneliness in children as well. We've also heard about how they are less likely to finish high school or college, that there are some stats that show that as well, right, Alison Gilbert? 100%. So there are stats about not doing as well in school that goes to that piece about staying engaged and focused that I mentioned when we were first starting to talk today. Um, We also know that it increases the level of risk taking and children getting into trouble uh, during school, whether it's drinking or, um, you know, drugs. Uh, We know, and Dr. Miles can talk about this as well, there's increased um, incarceration rates for children who get off track um, due to grief earlier in life. And we also know, and we can definitely dig into this too, because I find it to be really critical. There's an element to this conversation that is indeed about race and where Black families and Black children who experience more grief earlier in life, so quantitatively more, experience lifelong implications. I want to also bring Tony Miles in about what we need to understand about the impact of this. After the break, we're talking about grief, COVID-19, and children. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how the U.S. is facing a grief crisis from the pandemic, the ways that it can impact society, and what a public health response could look like. We're joined by Dr. Tony Miles, 
professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Georgia's College of Public Health, also a medical doctor. Allison Gilbert is with us as well, journalist and author of the book Past and Present, Keeping Memories of Loved Ones Alive. And you, our listeners, are with us. If you'd like to share what your experience of grief has been, particularly if you lost a loved one to COVID and how that has impacted you or what you've learned about it if you have lost somebody before. We're also wondering what you feel like you need, either from others or from the government, for example. The phone number, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Dr. Miles, from the start of the pandemic, we know that Latino, Black, Indigenous, some Asian ethnicities as well have been disproportionately affected by COVID. And I was really struck by how we're already starting to see this now in the parental death figures of children. Black children, for example, accounting for 20% of the kids who've lost a parent to COVID, but they make up less than 14% of all children in the U.S. What do you feel like we need to understand about the impact of this? Um, that children require the structural as well as an emotional response. Um, that's especially if you take a teenager, which mm. is probably the, the most complicated transition in our lives to adulthood. That's the moment any of you who've raised a teenager, you know, they need you as much as they needed you when they were babies, um, emotionally and financially, structurally. Um, one story that will never live or leave me is about an adolescent whose father died of HIV back when HIV was a big problem. Um, He left her with, you know, life insurance, but she died of of, uh, not taking care of her asthma uh, because she needed the emotional response in addition to the structural support. And so one of the responses give you a positive example. One of the structural responses that had been built into the Affordable Care Act was um, health insurance for children who who might wind up in the foster system who are aging out. Mm. Um, That transition, that's a structural piece that we never really think about. But if you lose your parents, you lose your your health care access. So it's it's complicated. And also, yes, you were talking about teens. One of the stats that I saw was that three quarters of the kids who've lost a parent are actually teenagers. And just the complications, as you say, of that period in your life, it tends to be the time when, you know, you you sort of have conflicts or challenges with your parents. And it must be a lot for teens to deal with if they lose a parent in that time. Right. And and the, the loss of the parents can lead to their own demise. That's the point I want to make about that young lady who, who lost her father to HIV and within, I would say, 18 months, she was dead from uncontrolled asthma. Now, no one linked those two, but it was very clear that his presence helped stabilize her asthma. And when he was gone, that was it. I also understand that less than 50% of kids who experience the loss of a parent are receiving their Social Security survivors benefit. So A, it doesn't sound like a lot of kids who are entitled to certain structural supports or public dollars are accessing them, but it also just underscores, it sounds like just the incredible financial changes that occur. I mean, you mentioned health insurance, but just the financial hardship of losing a loved one as well, Dr. Miles. Housing. 
Yeah, go ahead. Go, Allison, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that's exactly right, Mina. And that is why I wrote the New York Times opinion piece, which is that we need a White House Office of Bereavement Care to make sure that all of these cross-departmental, interagency, all of these various structures, the scaffolding that is meant to support families are shifted into high gear when a loss occurs and that each family member is kind of, you know, given that protective bubble wrap um, where they are able to access exactly what they need during a time of loss. And so nothing and no amount of resources falls through the cracks. And I feel like we're just beginning to see the hope that the federal government sees the value of this. Um, You know, just really briefly, you know, President Biden um, has put forward the American Families Plan. And in that plan, there is already, um, there are many things, of course, but there's bereavement leave. And so to make sure that in terms of just money, there's partial wage replacement for folks who need to take time off. And that really that underscores that there is more to this grieving Mm. than just sadness, right? right? And that goes to what Dr. Miles is talking about. There's a reason why families need um, paid time off to care for um, a family member and themselves after there's a loss. And just before, uh, yes, Dr. Miles, please. um, we, We don't have to invent this from scratch. The military... I had a long conversation with one of our uh, fellows. We have military fellows that are on campus. When a military family loses someone in combat, the services are wrapped around that family and the children in that family are supported for as long as they need to make that transition. So we can learn a lot from uh, people who who have loved ones who die in theater and bring it into the uh, public sector. Well, uh, let me go to some calls that are coming in. I'll start with Jeremiah in Berkeley. Hi, Jeremiah. Thanks for calling. Uh, hi. I I, I um, lost my mom in 2007, um, and you know I wanted to kind of talk about like there's so many layers of grief, and you know in the in the early days and in the beginning, it's you know it's it's hard to function. It's hard to do anything, and the only thing that really helped me get through that was. Um, you know, therapy and support on a, on a really deep level. And I was lucky enough to have that, but it keeps going. I mean, the, the grief kind of always stays with you and affects you. And um, as, you know, as much as you can do in the beginning, just to get through that time when it's almost, when it's just hard to operate. Um, you know, I think that there's just a lot of support that's going to be needed and um, yeah, hopefully yeah. that can happen, but but I really resonated with that anger issue and how how it's it's grief is much more than sadness. It's such a it's like complex layering of emotions that still you know every time a Mother's Day comes up or a birthday or a holiday, you sort of it gets refreshed and stirred up again. Um, but I just wanted to share that, Jeremiah. I really appreciate you sharing that, and I'm so sorry about your mom. What what Jeremiah brings up too. Dr. Miles reminds me of something that I read where you 
said in an interview that it actually took you a couple of years to realize what you were truly dealing with with regard to grief and that grief really isn't something that ends it's it's something that comes and goes over over the course of your life really oh absolutely um one one uh, quote that I've came came across that has helped me, you know, I've lost my brother died in, in 2012. And so I know what Jeremiah is talking about is that grief lays mineral deposits that we later mine. Um, his passing, my brother's passing was part of the impetus for launching this uh, path of research. That that idea of it being minerals that you later mine is so so powerful, and it also speaks to that long term that we were talking about. So, what would uh, an adequate public health res response look like? You said that we could look for models in the military. Do you have any other thoughts in mind? Allison Gilbert brought up a bereavement office, for example. Are there other things that you think are really important to do in terms of? public or government level intervention services that are more long-term? Um, we need to do a better job with tracking people, not tracking, that's not a good word. Uh, we don't, for example, if you get hospice and you're in the hospital and your family members are, are served by the hospice, the hospice pale ends, I think way too soon. So mm -hmm. we, need, we need connectors. Um, a friend of mine is a hospice chaplain and people have asked him, well, can you help us now that we're going back home? And he's like, no, I'm not allowed to cross the hospital threshold. So we, we have gaps. And so one of the things I will tell you uh, I am doing here in Georgia is a statewide push to train everyone to deliver bereavement care to, to one another. Um, Yes, absolutely. But your your point also about tracking, not that that's the best word, but but it sounds like we also just don't collect enough data on people who have experienced this this level of loss, Alison Gilbert. I think that what I have noticed uh, in the private sector as just one example, in terms of even the nonprofits who are, quote unquote, in business to help the bereaved, is that there are silos. And I think there are new efforts and amazingly exciting efforts to join forces that COVID has stirred. And I find that to be incredibly exciting. And I think the more there is collaboration, um, and I mean that from across different types of loss. And so we were talking about um, when children are bereaved earlier, we've also spoken about spouses who lose their partners. But of course, there's many other relationships that are impacted when there is loss. And I feel like there's definitely schools of thought, important remedies that can be put into place, not to find solutions, as you have said, that there is no kind of, you know, final determining this is your last day of grief, clearly that doesn't exist. But there are remedies for moving forward that can make us all feel so much stronger. Mm -hmm. And when we start breaking down those silos, and again, going back to that initiative, 
that Evermore is really at the forefront of. Evermore is really the advocacy group that's pushing for the first White House Office of Bereavement Care. Once you break down those silos that I'm referring to, but of course you break down those silos across federal agencies, that's what Evermore is talking about. I see. And that's what will help the most. Well, Additionally, some grassroots groups have emerged like COVID Survivors for Change and a group called Marked by COVID to lobby state and federal officials for support and accountability. And actually joining me now as an advisor to one of the groups that started in the Bay Area, Marked by COVID, and Larry McGid is with us. Larry McGid, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Mina. First, can you tell us about Marked by COVID? How did it form? Who's involved? Sure. Uh, Marked by COVID was, it's a grassroots movement that was founded and is continuing to be led by people who have lost loved ones to COVID. And they're seeking a response to the pandemic that promotes health equity, recognition and prevention of future pandemics. You know, we actually have a listener comment that says, are you familiar with the legislation proposed by an Arizona congressman to have the first Monday of March be a national day of mourning? This could be a good way for a whole nation to get better at grieving. This concept came from the organization marked by COVID. So is this one of the things that you're trying to accomplish a national Memorial Day? Absolutely. Um, The marked by COVID has been calling for ongoing and permanent memorial for grief, mourning, and remembrance, and um, at the local, state, and national level. And we had a lot of success uh, with uh, March 1st being recognized by many states uh, as a national day of mourning. And we'd like to see that uh, to be a, a permanent federal COVID Memorial Day. One of the things that I was interested in was the term accountability that's been used to describe by, by the group about what they want to accomplish. What, what do you mean by accountability? What does that look like? Um, well, it looks like a number of things. Um, as as both uh, Dr. Miles and Allison Gilbert have mentioned, um, there's a lot of different ways that grief manifests itself, and there's a lot of different needs. And uh, in surveys that our organization has done and other organizations have done, um, there are significant out-of-pocket medical expenses, mental health counseling, as well as expenses for funerals and burial, loss of earnings, very specific things. And um, I think uh, Alison Gilbert's call for a White House Office of Bereavement um, would would be a great first step, but I think creating some kind of victims compensation fund, perhaps modeled on the 9-11 victims compensation fund to help uh, individuals and families with these very significant and real expenses when a loved one is lost. Larry McGee, before I let you go, working with this group and and knowing that at its root are people who have experienced grief as a result of a loss from the pandemic, do you think that it's helped people to be able to channel some of that into political action? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this group, uh, as I said, was was founded by um, actually one of my former students, Kristen Urquiza, who... um, uh, lost her father uh, to COVID in Arizona. And um, now there are thousands of people who have joined and are citizen activists all over the country. Um, and I think one of the ways, uh, one, one of the really difficult things about uh, this time is that people haven't been able to grieve in community. Mm. And this organization has given people a community 
um, to grieve together, even though it's a virtual community and uh, given them a purpose and a focus um, and, and that advocacy, which they've been, I've been amazed at how effective they've been in, in just the last year. But um, that is a, you're right. That is a way for people to come together and grieve. Yeah. Well, Larry McGid, thanks so much for talking with us. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Larry McGid is an advisor to the grassroots group marked by COVID. And you, our listeners, are also with us talking about people who have been affected by a COVID loss and the way that grief has af affected them as well. Let me go to John in Coronado. Hi, John. Hi, good morning. I'm so glad you guys are bringing up this topic. I'm a 40-year living with person living with HIV AIDS, and I find it very interesting that I was wondering if your guest can address what the people who are grieving so intensely and the, the multitudes of people that are grieving, what are they doing with maybe a sense of anger that they have against their community that doesn't seem to pay attention or understand what's happening to them and mm. seems to just ignore it in some odd way by whatever reason. And because I remember in the 80s, the community, I mean, there were candlelight vigils. People embraced each other. We went, we did things. It was, it was known. It was there. It was, you know, in your face. And yes. I don't see that happening. And I John, find it just incredibly sad that why these people don't seem to be acknowledged. Uh, John, their... I thank you for bringing that in because Tony Moss, can, can you talk a little bit about just the the lack of, of acknowledgement and, and in some ways the inability to gather and, and to show uh, acknowledgement? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, John. I uh, actually started practicing medicine during the HIV epidemic. And so every day for months, I saw young men die. I was in Washington, D.C., so I totally resonate with your comment. And that's what makes COVID so much more difficult to bear right now. We have no um, unitary response. Uh, the outbreak in Georgia, for example, started with a mass funeral back in um, March of last year. 250 people showed up and then COVID exploded here. So... Um, Right now we're stunted. And so what we need to do is figure out a better way to come together. And, and it sounds like you're working on that problem. Thank you very much. I would love to add a- and an Allison Gilbert, let's do that right after the break. We're actually sure, just about Sorry. 20 Sorry. seconds in, no, no problem. But uh, just to remind listeners, we're talking about how the country is facing a grief crisis and what we can do to address it. We'll have more after the break with Allison Gilbert and Dr. Miles. Stay with us, I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas, actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A 2020 study found that for every person who dies of COVID-19, at least nine people become bereaved. And with those figures, our guests, Alison Gilbert and Dr. Tony Miles, are saying that America is facing a grief crisis. And we're talking about ways that we need to address it at the state and federal level, as well as interpersonally. Rachel asks, I'm a person in... I'm a pastor in Sonoma County. One thing I've been wondering about is what happens to the deferred grief people have been holding through the pandemic when they haven't gathered for funerals and memorial services. And Alison Gilbert, you had some thoughts on this. I think there is an opportunity to gather again and again and again. I think what we don't talk about as easily is that during COVID-19, when we couldn't gather in person, many of us did choose to gather, let's say on FaceTime or via Zoom or what have you. That could be memorial number one. That doesn't have to be the only memorial, the only memorial that feels less than. We can choose to gather again in the future, marking a birthday, marking an anniversary, marking, of course, the one-year anniversary of the loss. And then you can do it again at whatever other marking that you prefer. I feel like there's an opportunity to look at this a bit more inclusively of multiple opportunities for remembrance. And if we do that, we actually get to do something that we like to talk about in grief circles as regain your sense of agency that loss has taken away, right? Death leaves us all powerless. But when we decide to do something to honor and to remember our loved ones, that's taking power back. And that's what fuels our ability to move forward with hopefully when joyful memories can then not replace the sad ones altogether, but at least start bubbling up so you can enjoy memories at least a little bit more than when loss is completely new. Can, can I uh, just piggyback on that for Please. a second? Um, Allison is spot on there. Um, one of the things that I, I work with long-term care uh, homes across the state and one of the things that they are finding that helps with that process is memorial services. Um, some places do them easily, naturally, routinely, and they and people cry. It's not a bad thing to do that during that period, uh, but it gives them a chance to remember people who are gone fondly. And places that don't do it, that's where you see uh, bottled up emotions and uh, odd behaviors. So Allison is spot on. It mm. is very important. Remembrances are part of the healing process. Let me go next to Linda in San Francisco. Thanks for waiting, Linda. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Hi, Linda. You're on. Um, you know, I, I had a brother who committed suicide at 28, and that's been almost 30 years. And my younger brother, who is only, I think, maybe... 23 at the time when he, we lost my first brother. Uh, two years later, we lost my mom and dad within two months of each other. And we've, uh, I don't think my brother, my younger brother has 
really dealt with it, and he's a really bad diabetic, and he uh, wasn't mm-hmm. taking his meds for like a month, and he said he ran out of them and was having a hard time, but I think he, you know, he's kind of giving up, and I don't know what to do to help him. Linda, I'm sorry to hear that, and thank you for sharing it. Dr. Miles, do you have some thoughts for Linda? Because she's also bringing up some of the things that uh, maybe people aren't necessarily immediately pointing to grief as the culprit of. Well, and that, you are exactly right. Um, him not taking care of himself, like the teenage girl who, d- who decided not to take care of her asthma, that's a form of suicide. Um, and so recognizing it as such is a starting point. Um, And if, as one of the people I've talked to said, if you're not, you know, if you are not able to deal with this, then you have to help him find someone who can. Um, It is the persistent search that that I find from talking to lots and lots of bereaved staff. We haven't talked about staff at all, but people who work in the industry and repeatedly exposed to losses, they experience the kind of experience that your brother has, multiple losses. Um, and so you, you're persistently engaging him is, is one way just to get started with helping him. It may not look like it, but you're making a difference. Uh, well, Linda, thank you for the call. And also, Dr. Miles, I'm glad you brought up how people who do work in this industry, like hospice workers as well, and, and the short time that they often are given for bereavement is, is not enough. The other thing I wanted to ask you very quickly, Dr. Miles, as Linda's call is reminding me, are what are the signs that someone might be experiencing something that requires professional support? For example, as we know, a percentage, especially of those people who have lost someone close to them, will experience something that qualifies as something needing professional help. Um, I don't, you know, I would lie to you if I told you I know, knew the answer to that. Um, what we all have to do is, is not disengage from the person who's grieving. It's uh, what, what I've uncovered from my hours and hours of conversation with people is that most of us have our bereft of words. Uh, and sometimes words are not what's needed. Uh, a quiet presence can be good enough at the moment. Um, the way we help people is by continuing to engage with them. And then you know if someone is not taking their medicine, if they're not taking care of themselves. Um, then you make the determination at the moment you see those behaviors. But uh, it's it's a process. And as one of your callers said, it goes on. It comes and goes. Allison, you know, would you say? Yeah, I would say that too. But I feel like I could maybe also offer a few signs that um, are indicated at times. So for example, um, I do a lot of writing for the Center for Parent and Teen Communication, and that is out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And what we have talked about often is that there's ways of providing scaffolding by being aware of just changing behaviors. And that could be not just disengagement, but maybe this kind of overcorrecting and getting super engaged too. The just the change of behavior over a long period of time, if it's stretched out, is an indicator that something could be 
um, worthwhile to investigate. So it could be withdrawal, but it also could be overcompensation, right? Someone who exercises too little could be one problem. Someone who overexercises could be another. That's a, you know, an oversimplification of an issue, but you understand, of course, what I'm talking about. So it's a matter of paying attention to something that may not even seem, um, relevant, right? Mm -hmm. How often someone is leaving the house. If you're a parent, how is your child doing in school? Are their grades falling? Um, Are they kind of overcorrecting and are they studying, you know, perhaps what you might think is, you know, too much. So it's that kind of real change in behavior that I think could be a clue to something that um, we can all address and look for. Yeah. Yeah. The point is not for you as the observer, to stay engaged with that person. Right. Well, let me go That's to That's the only way you're going to see that change. Go ahead. Let me go to caller Art in San Francisco next. Hi, Art. Yes, thank you. From what your guests have been saying, uh, a ritual of grieving can really help survivors. And there's going to be uh, such a ritual uh, next week, May 20th. Uh, the Great Panthers of New York City are sponsoring a National Day of Remembrance honoring nursing home lives lost. Mm-hmm. And that's 2 to 3 p.m. on May 20th. Um, and I... It's, I think it's very important that we have these opportunities that this one's ready made for exactly what you've been talking about. And I've sent you information about how to reach them. Um, I have oh, a phone number so. and I have, yeah, if you have that for your listeners, uh, please share that. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Was there something you wanted to add quickly? Yeah. Uh, the phone number to call is 917-340-8707 or contact the Great Panthers of New York City. This is okay. May 20th, 2 to, 2 to 3 p.m. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Alison Gilbert, you've written that there are signs that Bi- the Biden administration could be the one to really embrace an understanding of what people who are bereaved need. What are these signs? Why do you say that? Well, my gosh, I feel like uh, there's hope with a president like Joe Biden, who himself, of course, has dealt so personally with grief and loss throughout his um, adult life. Uh, just look what he did as president elect, you know, the night before he was sworn into office on January 19th of 2021 on the eve of his inauguration, he and the vice president elect, you know, they held a powerful memorial service for COVID-19 victims in Washington, D.C. Um, it's not a mistake that he's been called commander in grief, <laughs> you know, and other uh, names like that is because he has this sense of not just sympathy for loss, it seems to me, he has this empathy. And so if there is going to be um, a president who might have an interest to bring a White House Office of Bereavement Care uh, to bear, I feel like our hope rests um, at his feet. And already we're seeing hope of that. Um, I mentioned before, and of course I don't um, work for the Biden administration. I just see the tea leaves, right? I'm an author and I'm a journalist and I'm just reporting back what I have seen. But at least in the American Families Plan, with there being language about national bereavement leave and getting money for those workers who do want to take advantage of it, I feel like there's hope. 
Yes, you were mentioning that $9,000 reimbursement from the Federal Emergency Management Agency and uh, some other efforts that uh, the the administration appear to be looking into. We're talking about how the country is facing a grief crisis due to the pandemic and the ways that it can impact public health and why it requires a public response. We're joined by Alison Gilbert, journalist and author of Past and Present, Keeping Memories of Loved Ones Alive, and also Dr. Tony Miles, professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Georgia's College of Public Health. She's also a medical doctor. This also happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations. So thanks so much for your help and I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to caller Peter next in Cupertino. Hi Peter, thanks for waiting. Hi, yeah, I'm glad you're discussing the topic because like your speaker said, it seems to be you know one that's only come to the forefront because of COVID. Um, my grief experience is I lost uh, a partner of 30 years and mm. the last of my immediate family about two years ago. Oh, wow. And then I attended a, a support group and then I realized that some people had been grieving for 15 years, and it was incredible. And the problem is, I think that um, grief is such a private thing that no one can know what you're feeling, obviously, because your experiences are so individual and unique. And so um, I decided, your, your speaker mentioned the intensity of feelings. I turned those intensities the intensity of that feeling, that anger to um, exercise and music to find meaning that way. Mm. And then I realized that, you know, like what you've lost, um, you have to commemorate through ritual. You have to remember. But at the same time, those connections are gone. So you have to create something new, something borrowed, something blue. <laughs> and that has helped. Um, the grief group I stopped going to the uh, uh, attending it about three months ago, and then they've called back and they say, we want you back, you know, because you give something to the group. And what I gave was, it was a religious group, a Catholic grieving group. So I spoke in the language that they were familiar with, you know, that you're alive and there's a purpose for living and you have to find that. And you have to find the people who care. And at the same time, you have to care for people. And that has helped um, incredibly. Well, Peter, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I'm very sorry for your losses. And I'm so glad to hear what you have learned and that you have also told all of us. I, I want to read a couple more comments before I ask you, Allison and Tony, to, to respond to what Peter was saying, because there are just a lot of related things. Nancy, for example, writes, I'm always saddened and angered by the media usually saying the day after a tragedy or death, something like, quote, the community is still grieving. There should be time spent in health classes about how to deal with grief and understanding that it is a process. Another thing is this listener writes, I had my dearest friend and my grandson die within eight months of each other. It has been over five years and I honor them in my grief each day. There is an altar in my home for them. I celebrate the things they loved, their birthday, their anniversary, holidays, including their memory. If you do one thing, say their names and share your memories with the bereaved. When I listen to all of these comments, I listen to Peter um, Alison Gilbert, I think about the ways that you have definitely talked about that our conventional response to grief or our impersonal, interpersonal responses to grief could use some improving. 
Well, you know, I have spent a um, career talking about uplifting, empowering ways to keep the memory of loved ones alive. And it comes from a personal place. I lost both of my parents um, relatively young as a young adult. And so I wanted not only to remember them because I wanted to remember them, I wanted my children to know who their maternal grandparents are. And I say are, not were intentionally because my parents still are my children's grandparents, even though they are no longer living. And even though um, my children never met my mom because she died before I was married and had children and my father died shortly thereafter and only met my older, my son who is older. So I feel like there's this um, responsibility that I feel to honor their legacy, but it's more than that. It's not just this dispassionate, I must honor the legacy of those who've come before me. No, it's quite intimate. It's quite personal because I want my kids to see the personality and physical traits that they've inherited from both sides of the family. And I need to represent, I need to make sure that they know the stories and they know the aromas in the kitchen that evoke their grandparents and the tastes and the colors and the stories that really can bring mm. some texture right. to that relationship and make them know that their maternal grandparents are a part of their lives and have shaped them, even though they never met them. Uh, Tony Miles, Dr. Miles, anything you would add to f close out the hour in terms of just understanding how we can improve our responses to the kind of grief that we are, as this program has been about, experiencing as, as a crisis, really, as an epidemic? Yeah, the, um, the thing I, I, I advocate for is that all of us need to be better in helping one another. In uh, I've done some public health work. Georgia, before the pandemic, 45% of the population was newly bereaved in the prior two years. Mm. So uh, what I say is if we all turn purple tomorrow, there'd be a lot of purple people here. <laughs> uh, we really do. As you can tell, it's a very serious topic, but I don't take myself very seriously because it's really important, really, really important to be kind. That's where it all starts. If well, Dr. Yes. Miles, thank you for the kindness you showed by being here today. Allison Gilbert, you as well. Also, thank you to our listeners for their questions and comments and stories, and also to our producer, Ariana Prail, for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.